This is the Fixed Plasm podcast, dissecting fiction for role-playing inspiration. And I'm Ralph. Okay, for the next few episodes, I'm going to talk about cyberpunk and other near-future fiction. Uh, I'm going to start with Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash. Snow Crash was published in 1992, two years after GURP's Cyberpunk, which is my genre touchstone for cyberpunk because it's got a great bibliography. I'll talk about that in a bit. And Snow Crash might be considered post-cyberpunk. I think some critics have called it a sort of a parody or a satire on cyberpunk, which I think is a pretty fair analysis, um, although it's still useful because um, as although it's over the top, it does illustrate the same themes. So... As always, I'm going to give a synopsis then, then pick out some choice themes, and finally talk about role-playing games. Part 1. Plot and Setting The novel opens with Hero Protagonist as the Deliverator, an an armoured mafia franchise pizza delivery service travelling 100 miles an hour to deliver you pizza in 30 minutes or less. Otherwise, Uncle Enzo, the head of the mafia, will personally fly over and abase himself in front of the disappointed customer. Now, through a series of hilarious adventures, Hero's been given a pizza at the depot with 20 minutes on the clock for a delivery 12 miles away, which is, you know, unthinkable. And the consequences of a missed delivery are, well, too horrible to contemplate. So um, Hero makes use of his equivalent of uh, the taxi driver's knowledge through various routes through the various burb claves of Los Angeles. And things are going fine for him driving around the little suburbs, through people's gardens and over fences and, and uh, over swimming pools, until his vehicle is pooned by a courier with a K, uh, who they basically have a skateboard and a magnetic grapple, grapple and they get a free tow uh, from passing vehicles if they can get a magnetic latch onto it. Uh, and as a consequence of this, Hero's run ends with his vehicle nosediving into an empty burb swimming pool when he takes a wrong turn because he's a bit distracted. And at that point, it should be all over for Hero right there in the second chapter. Um, but... The courier that's caused him so much trouble stops and reveals herself to be a 15-year-old YT. She is the handle she goes by, short for yours truly. Um, She takes the pizza with minutes on the clock and delivers it with seconds to spare. As she's doing so, uh, much to the annoyance of the people who are receiving the pizza and thought they were going to get a big mafia payout, um, her ID, which she wears on the the chest of her courier, Um, outfit is scanned by a mafia stealth helicopter so she knows that they saw her deliver the pizza and she knows that they owe her as a beginning of a plot there Uh, anyway this is how we meet our two primary characters um hero protagonist is it is this expert sword fighter and hacker he's living out of a 40 foot long cargo container in the in the eustoric complex outside lax which he, he shares with the rock star vitally chernobyl who is the idol of courier skate punks everywhere by the way but otherwise a, a minor character and yt is this incredibly precocious streetwise and insanely brave courier who magnetically harpoons fast-moving traffic on her skateboard to get where she's going and her mother works for the feds by the way now hero's hacking past connects him with the black sun which is an exclusive club in the metaverse which is you know, cyberspace uh, and um also connecting with the other shareholders, David and Juanita. Uh, Hero coded a lot of the Black Sun back in the day, but he cashed himself out so his elderly mother could live in a comfortable gated complex in Korea. So he's he's amazingly talented, but also poor. 
and he prefers to maintain a presence in the virtual world via his terminal. Um, and it's on a visit to the Black Sun that he's offered and declines the drug Snow Crash. But then he sees David take it for the first time, and, and the wall of static that is presented by this virtual, uh, virtual, I think this virtual Barbie, who presents this scroll of, of static in front of David as part of the effect. Uh, it basically reduces David's meat body to a semi-conscious form, babbling in a sort of monosyllabic mystery language. And to work out what's happened, Juanita puts Hero on a significant expense account because she has a lot of resources and, and cash and, and um, gifts him a virtual library, complete with a virtual librarian, where he spends a certain amount of time getting a plot dump, essentially. While this is going on, we also get this glimpse of the franchised future of the balkanized North America. We, we take a tour of places like Mr. Lee's Greater Hong Kong and uh, Mafia franchise enclave in Compton. And Whitey and Hero agree on a working partnership, so they, they have two parallel, uh, two parallel threads, but which intersect at various points. Uncle Enzo, remember him, the head of the Mafia, personally meets Whitey to thank her for the pizza delivery, which he explains is part of the sort of Mafia's um, PR strategy. It's, it's all about making personal connections and with people and building a network. Hero takes a turn as a gig promoter, arranging for a gig with Vitaly Chernobyl, where he encounters Lagos, who is this character called a gargoyle. First of all, a conspiracy nut, and also he's got all this wearable technology on him, which is, and of course, this is 1992, so the concept, concept of wearables is, it's as if he's got a lot of, uh, you know, beige computing equipment strapped to him. Lagos is then dispatched by uber bad guy Raven, who is this enormous guy who crafts his knives and spearheads from glass and, and uses them to murder an awful lot of people. And and when we first see Raven, he's driving a nuclear warhead around in his motorcycle sidecar with the detonation key linked to his brain function. So it's kind of an intimidation tactic to end all intimidation tactics. The trail of clues uh, from Lagos notes, uh, basically Lagos has, has looked into uh, the, the underlying plot, which then conveniently Hero gets access to. Uh, it leads to biblical myths surrounding the Tower of Babel, the um, the birth of consciousness, the Garden of Eden, and uh, Sumerian language, which can access the base functions of the human cortex, uh, bypassing the higher language centres. Basically, this is what Snow Crash does. It hacks the brain by by bypassing the higher brain functions of fully conscious language and going straight for the brainstem, where you, you have sort of semi-conscious inputs that uh, that override the body function. And this character called L. Bob Rife plans to use this function to attack civilization. And he's constructed the Raft, which is this massive flotilla of linked ships, which houses this massive diverse community, all of which can, which communicate in this sort of, this basal Ur language, the, 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 the Babel language, that's supposedly spoken in many different tongues and everyone can understand them. As the plot progresses, Hero and Whitey converge on the raft from different directions. There's an exciting showdown where Whitey is abducted by the bad guy to be used as a as a hostage, uh, and then she ends up hanging out the helicopter and massing all of her courier friends to her defence, where they they all harpoon the helicopter and um, you know all the escape punks beating beating back against the other bad guy. Hero pursues Raven into the metaverse to prevent him from releasing the language bomb, which would pretty much destroy anyone hooked into cyberspace. 
And then Uncle Enzo and Raven have a showdown involving a glass knife versus a straight razor, while Whitey's mum picks her up from the airport in, in their little combat car. It's all gloriously colourful and over-the-top and silly. Part 2, Themes and Images Now, as I said before, some commentators have said Snow Crash is a, a satire of cyberpunk, uh, and I think that's a fair point. Um, so think about this. It was published in 1992, at which point cyberpunk was approaching mainstream. So we'd had cyberpunk RPGs for a while by then, and post-cyberpunk was not far off, because uh, you know, Neil Stevenson's next book is The Diamond Age. And, of course, that blends with biopunk and transhumanism, although the latter is arguably a, a much broader category, spanning a, a much longer time frame. Arguably, it begins with Frankenstein and, and runs parallel to cyberpunk literature. Bruce Sterling's Schism Matrix, which I haven't read, but I know about the shape as mechanists, and that, that appears in loads of different cyberpunk bibliographies. Um, partly because it's contemporary with Neuromancer, but that's definitely a transhumanist text. Cyberpunk is arguably a product of its time, and a lot of it is dated. It's genre fiction. So the first thing I want to talk about is what do we really mean by cyberpunk? And to follow, I want to consider some of the elements that have survived and transcended the genre, and the others that remain firmly in the past. So I'm going to talk about the baseline, okay? I'm going to talk about it with reference to, partly to the Fractopia podcast, which is, is part of a project by Todd Foley um, relating to Fractopian fiction, ubiquity, and, and various other things. I really encourage you to give it a listen. I, I really enjoyed it, particularly the episodes on ubiquitous computing and 3D printing. Uh, and I think also in the introductory episode, it kind of lays down the base assumptions about what the Fractopian future will look like, including you know, ubiquitous computing, energy consumption, economic stratification, the fact that humanity doesn't actually destroy itself, but it survives. In the second episode, there's a live chat, uh, and I think it's Adrian McCauley who describes cyberpunk as analogue, as opposed to being, you know, post-cyberpunk as being fully digital, which is what we what we expect of our, our uh, technology today. And I think this is such a perfect way of describing cyberpunk in the context of what we now see as, a, as, as future technology. It is rooted in an age where data was stored on magnetic media and communication was over serial connections. So there's a lot of things that appear in cyberpunk at the time that have been surpassed and made irrelevant or uneconomic by technologies we have today. Uh, Neuromancer has no Wi-Fi, um, everything's connected by physical leads in our popular cyberpunk of the late 80s and early 90s. You know, that there's the iconic image of the Solo on the cover of the first edition Talsorian cyberpunk, um, as an example with his flying lead coming out of his head and connecting to his gun. In fact, I think there's a case to say cyberpunk's become a kind of retro-futurist concept in some areas. A few years ago, I, I really admired um, this blogger Tears of Envy's Cyberpunk 1984 project, which sort of looked at the whole neon and chrome aesthetic and collected as many images as they could and, and put it into, a, I can't remember if it was a flicker or a tumbler or something like that. Um, that and, and that appears to have disappeared, which is a big shame, but it might be because they found another site which the you know which does exactly the same thing. Um, it's, uh, it's called recall.me. Uh, and, and they basically said in, in one of their posts around, 2013 or something that you know i may as well just delete my project because this is so much better i think it's a shame if they did but you know 
uh, recall is still surviving and it's great to look at. And at the time I found their project, I was looking into sort of cyberpunk as a, as a retro-futurist movement. And, and, you know, just for a laugh, I thought about calling it the Gibson Continuum, which is, you know, follows Gibson's Gernsbeck Continuum from Burning Chrome. But obviously, someone else has already thought of it. Um, in fact, several some several someones have thought of the concept of the Gibson Continuum. Ha ha. One reference I found was a blog post from 2011 that basically just laments the fact that the, the 1984 vision of Neuromancer hasn't yet made it to film. Another one was a, a comic strip from around 2015, of which the author has, has this to say, quote it, the piece was an acknowledgement of some kind to William Gibson, whose works are unapologetic in their immersive use of imagined near-future technical description that is impenetrable and alienating in effect. I wanted to use this technique in the same way Gibson does, except with real-world technology that currently exists, as another way to explore the extent to which we may have actually arrived at the future the cyberpunk authors imagined 30 years ago. Going back even further, though, I found an essay by Thomas A. Breithoft, I hope I pronounced that correctly, in Science Fiction Studies, July 1995, which draws on the Gernsbeck Continuum and makes parallels between futuristic pencil sharpness in that retro-futuristic 1930s and the technologies of the mid-80s computer, as well as likening the continuum with what they call the consensual hallucination of cyberspace. So I just put this together as a sort of rundown of the various elements of this sort of air quotes Gibson continuum. Imagine, again, it's imagine this as a consensual hallucination, an alternate history or an alternate future, but one which deviates from what we would expect now. Point one, cyberspace. Completely partitioned from reality, and in some cases it's a, a virtual representation of 3D space, to the extent that shopping in the net means visualising a 3D rendered supermarket and picking objects off virtual shelves. Virtual real estate is actually a feature of the street in Snow Crash's metaverse, and people will have houses and you know, make them look nice. So it's kind of like Second Life, I guess. So in this instance, there's no augmented reality, aside from probably... Um, heads-up displays and that sort of thing, but but nothing else like that. Nothing as to you know, what we would call augmented reality today. There may or may not be wireless technology. Um, in Snow Crash, Hero's deck actually connects via a cellular network, so there is that idea. But of course, uh, I don't think that there is any wireless technology in Neuromancer. Also, a lot of the time, hacking involves being plugged in. Sometimes it needs local access. But often it's being plugged in and then you hop to different nodes and then connect. Point two, corporations as a governing force. Largely, the corporations are responsible for ecological exploitation, privatisation, the stratification of society. You know, it's responsible for the dystopian future. But there's no real global oversight, and we assume that individual corporations are monitoring people to protect their own interests. Now, I think this is right for Neuromancer. In this continuum, corporations can be aligned with some nationalistic viewpoints. I, I believe that um, that's something that appears in Gibson's Sprawl trilogy. And 
You should note that the, the franchises in Snow Crash also have a national identity, so the Mafia are definitely tied to their European roots. We have Mr. Lee's Greater Hong Kong, which is explicitly not affiliated to the actual Hong Kong, but clearly it's it's trading off that name. And then there are also, you know, private armies, corporations, they which exist to protect their assets with extreme prejudice and seemingly with impunity. Corporations go to war with one another and governments, if there are any left, don't get involved. Point three, physical augmentation. The idea that, you know, you can enhance your reflexes, you can add skills from putting silicon in your head, etc. The way this works differs from fiction to fiction. So you've got, you know, silicon and brain software. Well, sorry, I should say you've got silicon chips that go into sockets. You could have software that actually programs the brain itself. You've got biotech, you've got nanotech, you've got viruses, gene therapy, all that sort of thing. Interestingly... Augmentation is largely absent in Snow Crash, but they do have a lot of gear. They do have things like exotic armour and, and really interesting computer terminals that, that display the information via lasers projected out of the terminal into the eyes. There are also the rat things, which are basically cyborg dogs powered by nuclear isotopes and kind of shaped like a cross between a rat and an armadillo and move about 100 miles an hour and... They uh, and they sleep in a cryogenically controlled chamber. Yeah. Fourth point: prefabricated stuff. So disposable and mass-produced one-use items like uh, guns, drug delivery systems, etc. As I said before, uh, the Fractopian podcast has a great discussion on three D printing. Uh, five: individual identity. Okay, bear with me. Um, this probably comes more from the RPG where the characters are free agents, so they, they establish a personal style. They're edge runners. Um, there's less emphasis in cyberpunk on collective identity than post-cyberpunk works. For example, the Diamond Age has this concept of files or tribes, that you, know, you must belong to something. Uh, and I don't think you see that much, that as much, in cyberpunk but personal reputation is a thing and networking matters so fame is really important for getting gigs okay so speaking of gigs point six the gig economy retrospectively neuromancer was describing a gig economy amongst edge runners but it's it's more obvious today because you know the gig economy is an emergent economic model right now and the same concerns about gig economies also apply to edge runners so no employment benefits, security or protections. Uh, and, you know, by contrast, corporates who are not the protagonists always have a, a wide range of benefits, you know, including medical, housing, um, insurance, legal protection, that sort of thing. So there are things that the edge runners on their own don't have, and they are on their own. Point seven, living conditions. The idea that everything is built up. People live in capsules and, and so on. Edge runners end up almost always living in temporary accommodation. They don't really accumulate stuff. They they probably don't cook very much for themselves. Instead, they you know they eat out all the time in needle bars, etc. And I, having been to Singapore, I'm, I'm I'm told that Singapore housing is a lot like this in a lot of places. You know, people don't tend to cook at home because you can eat out really really cheaply, um, if you want to eat out cheaply. So. Uh, Houses tend not to have big kitchens, which is kind of interesting. 
Uh, and I can imagine, so I can well imagine that you know, this is part of the cyberpunk ethos. It's like sort of, you don't have a stable living situation. Everything also, of course, is rented, and at the low end, everything's cheap and disposable. So, you know, we know places today where you have stories where buildings are really cheaply made, uh, and bullets will pass right the way through walls and hit occupants. This uh, this idea of a, a shotgun shack. Um, you can imagine that situation where you have a a formed plasticrete honeycomb of cells and a tower block, and you know, there's a firefight, and bullets can go in all directions. So point eight, which is the, the last point, is is about exotic locations as a, a staple of cyberpunk. Um, so rough rundown. First of all, new farming, uh, like kelp farms and interesting places where new kinds of food are grown. The wilderness, uh, the idea that so many people live in conurbations, uh, the, the wilderness has this almost, uh, almost has a mystique to it. Uh, it's completely alien and wild and, and um, a different kind of dangerous. Then, of course, uh, you've got you know, space, orbital colonies, Mars, the moon, belt. Some places being ecologically damaged, but others places being recovering and flourishing. So, so the idea of this, again, this, this wilderness, this wild open space that for some reason has become untouched for some time it's actually recovering and getting better and maybe that's a policy decision because um, corporations or people have chosen to create reserves um, that's the case in uh, transmetropolitan which you know, i must talk about that as well sometime anyway of those eight which ones still make sense today and which ones are out of date well, I'd say that cyberspace is far away the most dated aspect in the fiction because we've moved so far far ahead and away from this model of a, a separated world and instead we have this um, augmented reality where, where data is transmitted in the background seamlessly and distributed globally via the cloud and everything exists in layers of perception. Now, not far behind this is a sort of you know, dated concept of the corporations. It is entirely plausible for future government to be along corporate lines, but the 80s vision is this seems to be this very cartoonish evil empire. No real philosophy or moral accountability, just, you know, profit, profit, profit. Often what you see in post-cyberpunk is the idea of people assembling in collectives or tribes that share the same values. Now, I think it's reasonable to expect future corporations to firstly nurture their own communities, and secondly, not to pursue their own interests at the detriment of either the environment or the global economy. They are going to be aware of future trends and will move to ensure that whatever they do, it's sustainable. They're also not going to be drawn along national lines. They should be truly global and diverse, which the examples we have from you know, the early cyberpunk, frankly, aren't. I expect we'll continue to have this tendency towards collective identity, which will be at odds with individual identity. But a lot of the individual identity of the Edge Runner is born out of pushing back against the cartoon faceless corporations. Realistically, personal identity isn't incompatible with affiliation to certain communities or beliefs. You'll tend towards individuals being more diverse in the same way that global corporations will be more diverse. And a lot of this actually, I think, kills the dystopian corporate vision. Now, the stuff like prefabrication, the living conditions, the disposable objects, uh, gig economies, those are all plausible. Although, in the case of fabrication, there'll probably be a lot of recycling of one-use devices. The world will tend towards conurbation as well. You know, will this mean 
wild spaces acquiring a sort of mysticism around them, as I said earlier? Or will it be easier to live in remote areas because you have both the transport links and the ability to 3D print whole buildings in remote locations and just set up a commuter community in the middle of nowhere? And that's not incompatible with megacities still being on the ascendant because you know normally those concentrations of people will bring more employment opportunities so they will then attract more people and the cities will still continue to grow. There's no reason why a corporation shouldn't seed a community in a remote area when there are no downsides because they can just lay the infrastructure down for them to get into the big city when it's needed. The last point, I think, is augmentation. And on that point, I think you ha- you basically have to ask, why do people become augmented? And I think there's two kinds of people who are going to get augmentations. There's consumers and there's professionals. That makes sense. You know, today's tech often starts off with a specialised application and then the specialised application in the commercial realm filters down from the commercial space into the consumer space if it can be made cheap enough and if, you know, there's a market it can fill that that actually is something that the average consumer will want. Consumers and professionals are getting their gear for different reasons, though. Uh, So... So for consumers, let's say it's going to be for recreational, uh, cosmetic and and lifestyle reasons that they want all this new tech, whatever that is. Um, There was a a really great comment on the Fractopia podcast about wearable tech that would be tolerated by ordinary people. So, you know, it looks like jewellery. Consumers are going to, to want this stuff because it makes something easier for them or adds a benefit they didn't have previously. You know, like health tracking or, or something like that, um, or because it, it it changes their style, their outward presentation. Now, professionals are going to want gear because it actually helps them do complex and specific tasks. And in that instance, first they're going to be less concerned about what it looks like. Quite frankly, um, you know, headsets and armored laptops and uh, things built into helmets and breathing apparatus and fancy cameras where that they're okay with the bulk and the industrial looks because that's it's not for showing off. Second, they're going to have a different appraisal of what quality means. First off, the features may be on a different level to the consumer gear. And second, there may be diminishing returns as the kit gets better and better. But you've got successful edge runners who can pay for this gear because they're expecting a certain level of performance and um, their clients expect a certain amount of showing off competence. Uh, So you get a lot of brand name flash in cyberpunk, uh, you know, with Sentai Dermatrodes and, you know, Mitsubishi Hypermodems and that that sort of thing. And and this kind of made me think of of Hi-Fi for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, professional gear does a different job to home Hi-Fi. When you're a professional sound engineer, and and this is, you know, uh, me speaking as a layman, near-field monitors, they're not designed to look pretty. They're designed to have a very flat response compared to home speakers uh, because they're intended to be very revealing so that you can actually master the sound. Home consumers don't want a a big, ugly, rack-mounted amp, even if it does the same job. Um, They want something that looks sleek and and looks good on their their hi-fi shelf. And and there's a whole lot of snake oil with things like, you know, fancy-looking exotic silver cables and that sort of thing that convince ourselves that they do make the hi-fi sound just a bit better. Going back to this cyberpunkies analog comment, though, a lot of hi-fi exists in the analog domain still. Vinyl is a very physical medium where people worry about things that can 
affect the signal. Tone arm construction on the on the record deck or wiring it and, and how steady the platter rotation is. Not only that, there, there's an argument that vintage gear is sometimes better because, you know, old receivers with power meters and valve amps and vintage idler wheel record decks and, and all that sort of stuff are, are better than modern, modern equivalents that are made to a price point and the components aren't as reliable, etc. So here's this, my, my retro... My reimagined retro futuristic cyberpunk is going to is going to obsess over the cables connecting their cortical socket to their deck. Uh, they're going to favour Indian silicon over mass-produced Canadian consumer stuff. They're going to have a, a tuned vintage cyber deck, fully restored with a, a reconditioned authentic Sendai polymer case and, and reloomed internals. They're going to they're going to camp out on eBay for a near mint used Arasaka Broad Spectrum I, which is probably repurposed from a, a lunar helium three miner who upgraded on her corporate ticket. And they're going to wear all these brands with pride, and, and they're going to talk about them endlessly in in Edge Runner, Matcher, and Kelp cafes while cultivating sleeve tats and neo Victorian facial hair. They'll lament the new breed of digitally enabled hackers, referring the analog squawk of their serial modems and the um, patina on their micarta grip of their vintage but smart-enabled Colt M1911, modified with non-lethal vegan gel ammo, naturally. But they'll get the job done. Okay, um, there's one last theme I want to talk about because it's a central theme in Snow Crash and it's something I've been thinking a lot about since covering Imagica, which after after wading through that sort of woolly urban fantasy world building, I kind of I kind of got hankering for some hard SF, hence diving into cyberpunk. But um I, I'm gonna talk about magic. Now there are magical connotations in Snow Crash. The the idea that you can hack human behaviour by speaking to a preconscious self bypassing language centers and, and thereby directing behavior of the target. This isn't the um, any sufficiently advanced tech looks like magic thing. It's more like rationalizing psychic powers in terms of an exploit on the human body. So it's, it's still kind of a hard SF idea. And one of the reasons urban fantasy works is there's a, a low cognitive load on the surroundings because it's our world. And we can make a lot of assumptions and then uh, about what that world looks like and then free up our cognitive processing for the meta plot and, and, and the magic and, and, the, um, uh, and the mystery and that sort of thing. I feel that's kind of the reason cyberpunk works because we kind of get the environment. It's not far from where we are today. We can imagine just this extra layer of tech on things, the extra neon and, and the, you know, the wearable technology and all that sort of thing. Now, when it comes to the air quotes, magic and snow crash, we can, we can sort of get it. And partly it's Neil Stevenson's writing which makes the idea accessible, you know, hacking human brains to do the equivalent of charm person. There's a more interesting point about magic and mystery in cyberpunk, and it's this, you know, going back to this consensual hallucination in the Gibson continuum. First of all, you have a sort of lawless virtual reality where people have to have the creative freedom to make programs look the way they want to. I've got the original card game Netrunner. It's, it's full of cool symbols from the various programs on offer. Uh, and I guess by extension, the data fortresses you're trying to penetrate. Uh, you know, you can make this look like full-on D&D in the net. But what about the real world? Uh, well, first off, I, I think you have to decide if humans can be hacked. If you can, that looks like magic. But more importantly, people are going to attach... Um, mystical or religious significance to the images in the net and possibly the real world if hacking people is a thing 
uh, and as shown by Snow Crash, this kind of mysticism is, is an affirmation of biblical themes, so it already has a certain resonance. Now, if you want to make if you want to make use of this kind of magic, but you want a, a different attribution, well, you can use any kind of conspiracy you like. You know, say a, a programming philosophy based on the Kabbalistic tree of life, or you know, Hermetic occult or the Tarot. Um, I think the point is we have to remember that the web will be built by geeks who are keen on this kind of thing and will love to insert D&D references or Alice in Wonderland or, or whatever into cyberspace. And going back to the portal fantasy I talked about a few episodes ago, cyberspace is a completely separate reality which characters can go into and do battle and, and exercise their powers. So you could have a separated game with stuff characters can do in the real world and then other powers they have in the fantasy constructed world so here's a thought what what if the characters encountered something in the net that was wasn't provably of human origin the um the the base idea the the, the obvious idea for that is a, an involving ai that exists purely in virtual space this is another way to introduce gods and aliens what would the cthulhu mythos look like if it were wholly contained within cyberspace how would it terrorize the real world this idea about hacking people's minds, that would work. Um, this is kind of an aside, and you know, and it, it sort of illustrates the point about why I don't really like or see the point of Shadowrun, because humans have this environment in which to invent complete worlds where the AI fairies and dragons hold domain in their kingdoms, which, because they're distributed over the entire cloud, are, are functionally immortal. And next to that, having actual elves and, and fairies and that sort of thing, um, it kind of seems unnecessary. I would, I suppose, favour a Shadowrun or, or a similar fantasy-adjacent cyberpunk game where the magical beings were citizens viewable through augmented reality, maybe in fabricated bodies, maybe they're ghosts or something like that, but they're actually people with full-on citizenship who identify as elves and may not even you know be here in terms of physical bodies but of course you know that that's then veering into the post cyberpunk era and transhumanism etc and i think i want to save that for another time part 3 the role playing bit It's time we talked about role-playing games. First thing I want to talk about is commercial RPGs uh, of the cyberpunk era. So very much in the time that this was a thing. I've got three such games on my shelf. Um, cyberpunk 2020 is the original. Uh, well, original. It's the second edition, but it's, it's the popular one. Now, I, I play some great games of cyberpunk, but I've never actually run it. I do have copies of the old Mekton Zeta game which is um, Talsorian's mecha game and it, it uses the same uh, system I want to say interlock system I think uh, uses the same system as cyberpunk in fact I think they they released a campaign I think it was called Starblade Battalion there's a name it puts cyberpunk 2020 in the past of their mecha space opera uh, and and that's kind of kind of appropriate really because all I remember about Cyberpunk 2020 is an awful lot of fighting and shooting people and, you know, the boosted reflexes and the skin weave and, and all this and the other. So 
I do kind of think about that game as we just killed an awful lot of people. The game I, I much prefer to read is GURPS Cyberpunk, which you know is you know common with a lot of GURPS books, really well researched, great bibliography, quite thoughtful in how it presents technology, economics, politics, and so on. What I think it does is it goes a lot further than Cyberpunk 2020 in terms of genre emulation, because it really does a great job of the advantages and disadvantages in cyberware. Um, for example, you've got terminally ill characters uh, and characters with no physical no physical body as, as disadvantages uh, and a whole load of different silicon chips that you can put in your head including behavioral modifiers uh, database packages and so on uh, and of course you know GURPS is this you know pick and mix thing um, and I've also got biotech and transhuman space and, and both of those would work really well together for post cyberpunk stuff um, Oh, my copy of um, Cyberpunk is the one with the um, We Were Seized by the FBI triangle on the front, so that's quite cool. Um, unfortunately, I don't really like GURPS, despite liking their books. I've got a third book called Chromosome, and this is actually the, the, the newest one, having been published in 1994. Huh? Um, it's written by Wolfgang Bauer, published by TSR as part of their Amazing Engine games. Um, the modifications are genetic rather than cyberware, and as you might expect, it's like a you know a yet another laundry list of weird equipment plus some hacking rules. It does go beyond regular cyberpunk and starts to think about you know humans on the moon and and in the belt and that sort of thing, and and I quite like it for that. Um, not so keen on the tiny print. I don't really like the layout, but I like the way it's written generally. I think the I think the one thing that all of these games have a problem with, and I know that Shadowrun has a similar problem with, is is the whole hacking rules, which you know it becomes this mini game which slows everything else down. Uh, very difficult to run hacking at the same time as all the other action is going on. I would like to know if the modern Powered by the Apocalypse Cyberpunk games have solved this problem. Um, and I think that the two that come to mind are The Sprawl and The Veil. The Veil I'm very interested in. That looks awesome. Uh, I do have like you know high hopes for those because, because Powered by the Apocalypse is so good at genre emulation with a bit of clever thought. I will say this though, an awful lot of the cyberpunk I remember playing is focused on making humans more powerful, especially in a fight. Whereas the interesting things that come out of cyberpunk literature are the politics, the economics, the way society self-assembles into those interest groups who are massively advantaged compared to the people outside those groups. So you've got social disparity and, and of course, the way that advances in technology drive the plot and create problems. I guess I should talk about an idea for a game, which, which I, have, I have got an idea for a game. Well, it's only tenuously connected with Snow Crash, so it's kind of breaking the rules, though. On the other hand, Snow Crash is a sort of satire, so there's, there's not a lot to pick up on that has any real substance. And I think the thing that I would pick up, and the thing I have picked up on, is this idea of franchises and the personal affiliation to economic bodies. So I like the idea about um, corporate-sponsored communities in the middle of nowhere. Um, say you know, it, it benefits a corporation to set up a sea community in a desert or on a glacier or in the middle of a rainforest. Um, they provide the transport links. There's no downside to the employees because they're living in this prefabbed luxury accommodation that looks like a suburb, except outside the suburb is a glacier or a rainforest or a desert. 
but they can live inside there with all the comforts and infrastructure they'd normally expect and they can they go to work every day you know you've got this franchise you know like the mafia or an outgrowth of new hong kong or or possibly even a more traditional corporation like a, a biotech firm the franchise can do this because uh, that you know they can get the land in the middle of nowhere and they can 3d print all the housing needed and quickly lay in waste treatment and sustainable energy and all that stuff so your characters your your franchise affiliates are kind of like pioneers living together in this community and i think there's two things that they can do which will actually make the game you play number one is they go to work in the region you know maybe let, let's say it's a biotech firm they have a particular interest in the area for cultivating algae uh, or maybe it's located here because the research isn't legal on u.s soil or something so the employees can sink their teeth into a, a mystery which brings them into contact with the environment outside their home they might meet um, the local displaced people who should be living where they are. Uh, they might meet neighbouring countries with unstable political situations and, and actual real violence or or hardship or political problems to solve. And the other thing they could do in game is actually the the inward focusing stuff by you know actually making a life and having a family and a community there. All of the characters are effectively forming a village, and they have to get along. Let's say they they want for nothing because you know they've got this prefab luxury living space and it's a dream come true, but what they do have to do is live with everyone else and tolerate them. So you know, you'd end up with this kind of daytime mystery adventure and a nighttime drama game. And I'm thinking uh, there are a couple of game systems that come to mind, but I was thinking there might be nothing more perfect than Apocalypse World because even though the world hasn't ended, all these characters have been artificially thrust together into a space where outside it's kind of hostile now some of them will will be stronger community leaders than others so you know you've got your heart holders and your heart holders and your your hocus and that sort of thing and they'll have resources for some reason and the others will be individually capable for the and, and they might be better suited to the daytime missions you know for example you know, you you make a case for needing a gun lugger character to protect the scientists who are looking into the algae farm next to their politically unstable neighbours. So you, somebody says, I'm going to play a, a gun lugger, and say, OK, that's, that means that we're going to look at a particular kind of fiction, we're going to have a particular kind of front. And you've got a chance to build Ajax and, and form connections. You establish, you establish the fronts, the characters, secondary characters, and that sort of thing. What you have to decide is what is of value in this world if, if all the basic living needs are catered for. Uh, you know, Apocalypse World has barter. So what does barter represent in this case? It's stuff that you can't normally get that isn't supplied by the franchise or the corporation. Maybe because they don't approve. Maybe they, because they have certain corporate rules. Why not also represent the net or the matrix by the open your brain move? You know, this random dump of information. You don't know what you're going to see. I think where I'm going with this is I am much more inclined to take cyberpunk as a genre and use it as a context for Apocalypse World than use a different Power by the Apocalypse game that has been tuned to emulate the cyberpunk genre, which probably sounds a bit strange. I think, you know, cyberpunk games are great for providing colour and lists of guns, but they, they rarely provide all the, the scientific impetus from cyberpunk fiction, you know, the consequences of disruptive technology, the, the social consequences of disruptive technologies in themselves. So, you know, 
this is my proposal, and maybe this is a, a bit anticlimactic. The proposal is not to use a cyberpunk game. Instead, use the things the game system brings to the front and put it in a cyberpunk context. If it's a drama system game, then you make it all about community and identity and, and affiliation. If it's Apocalypse World, you, you make it about close communities and, and scarcity and the formation of cults and new religions and, and organisation. And you can assume that people have all the cyberware they want because they're going to have access to the, the tools that they need to use. So it doesn't matter if you have a big gun that you carry or a big gun that's embedded in your arm. It's a big gun. Okay, I, I may have some more coherent thoughts about this in the future, but but on a I'm on a cyberpunk and post cyberpunk journey, and and I should probably pace myself. Uh, this this episode's already quite long, so with that in mind, thanks for listening, and until next time. Hey, if you enjoyed this podcast, it'd be great if you could like, share, review, subscribe, or just comment. Music for the podcast is provided by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at chrissabriskie.com. Check the show notes. Bye.